0: very warm welcome to you. This is A Reason for Hope, and we are with you live for the next hour to receive your questions on God's Word, the Bible. That's right, if you have questions on the Bible, maybe a verse or passage of Scripture that you'd like kind of expanded upon, expounded upon, maybe, uh, you know, world events from a biblical perspective, maybe there's something you're going through in your world, in your life, and you would... Very much like to honor the Lord in it, but would like some guidance in how to do that. Really, any question, if it's an honest question from the heart, um, you can bring to us and we will find those answers in the word with the Lord's help. That's what we're here for. And we're very glad you're joining us today because, again, your questions guide this show um, each and every time. So we're very glad uh, for, for your presence with us and your questions as they come on in. My name's Dave Robson. I will be hosting today and fielding your questions And with me is Pastor Sean Richards. Young man, how are you doing?
1: I found a rice cake. I'm going to eat it, <laughs> but I'm not going to tell you
2: when.
0: <laughs> oh, well, that is very exciting. <laughs> I would recommend... So, so stay, than stay later, tuned yeah. to find out <laughs> If you're watching you can on answer
2: the, a <laughs> biblical question with a mouthful of rice <laughs> <that's> cake. <right. laughs> can if we that throw, happen?
0: If we throw to Sean and you just hear a mumbling, then you know why. If you're watching on the radio, you won't get to see the visuals. How sad for you. Also with me in the studio, Pastor Scott Richards. Very good to have you with us today. How are oh, you doing? it's
2: awesome to be able to be here. It's just amazing how quickly uh, the, the questions that people have on their hearts uh, pile up, if yes, you will. they do. Uh, boy, the theme this uh, week has seemed to be uh, we, we go into lightning round status because yep. we certainly want to get to all of your questions uh, before we have to sign off. Uh, so if you want to make sure we get to your questions, try to get them in as quickly as you can. Yeah. Uh, Lord, lay something on your heart. Maybe uh, you've been wrestling with Internet trolls and they brought up something you weren't uh, equipped to answer. Uh, feel free to bring it on. We'll be more than happy to try to equip you uh, to be able to give a reason for the hope that's within you. That's what the program's all about. Uh, maybe uh, uh, you have been uh, have a tough question that's been percolating in your own heart uh, and you've never found... A no harm, no foul, non-judgmental place to get the question answered. That's what we try to do here, uh, each and every edition. So uh, bring on those questions. That's I right. mean, the only uh, standard for our question pretty simple. Just make sure it's a sincere question. That's what we're looking for. And uh, if you're looking for an answer straight from the Bible, we'll be happy to provide it. Amen. Yeah. Amen to
0: that. Yeah. And talking about things going quickly, I can't believe it's Friday again. It seems like just yesterday I was saying it's the end of the week, and we're here Friday again. We're here Monday through Friday from 5 to 6, same time. And let me let you know how you can join us. Obviously, if you're hearing us and seeing us, then you found a way. Well done to join us. If you're listening (laughs) to us on Reach Radio, uh, you are listening to our last show pre-recorded. But do email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. That's questionsforhope, all spelled out there, at gmail.com. And we'll endeavor to get to your question at the beginning of the next show when we're live. A Reason for Hope is a, a ministry and outreach of Calvary Christian Fellowship here, where, where Scott Richards is a senior pastor. So you can find us on our website, calvarychristianfellowship.com, follow the Watch Live tab, and we're live there. There's a, there's a comment section where you can interact with us and your questions there. Also on Facebook, Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson, we are live there also. We have an app that you can download on your mobile device, also Roku and Apple TV, so should you want to use those devices. That is also a possibility through our app. On YouTube, we're at A Reason for Hope. That's the name of the channel there. A Reason for Hope. You can join us there as well. You can follow Pastor Scott on Twitter at Scott R. You look and you're impressed, hi. Huh? Remember, <laughs> yeah. Well, I've, I've just started making this part of my uh, my little spiel. The Twitter, I keep forgetting the Twitter account. So Scott R for H. That's Scott. Letter R, number four, letter H. Right on Twitter. And
2: And it's a wild and woolly site. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. We get all kinds of interesting stuff going on there. (laughs) So obviously that's going
0: on uh, throughout, you know, throughout the week. If you follow Pastor Scott, are little um, updates on world events and highlights from the show and all kinds of things. So that's in our email address. So ways that you can keep in touch with us 24 seven. And of course, those other platforms I mentioned, we are live at. Um, so if you're on the radio, consider joining us on one of our live platforms when you're not on your drive time so you can interact with us live. Um, well, Pastor Scott, I heard a rumor that you like talking to God. So would you like to pray for us?
2: That rumor is confirmed. as it? Well, yeah, go. Nothing I like better than talking to the Lord. Uh, it's always such an amazing thing to be touched by His amazing grace and love. So let's yeah. do that. Lord, what a beautiful thing it is that we can take a moment and calm our hearts and set aside all of the distractions that can come our way, whether it's through the media or it's the mad rush of events that surround us, and uh, draw near to you. Lord, I thank you that you are the good shepherd of the flock and that you can use this time to lead us to green pasture and still water where our souls can be restored. That's my prayer for this time. And if there are those joining us who just feel agitated or confused or bewildered, or maybe even fearful because of all the events going on around us in this world, I pray they would find that your word can be just such a beautiful refuge, that you long to uh, envelop them in the shadow of your wings. And, uh, Lord, uh, spending time hearing your word, applying your word, learning to walk in the light, as you shed your light on us through your word, bring such peace to us. So I pray that peace that passes understanding would just flow to those who are joining in here. I pray, Father, that if there are those joining us that are on the outside looking in at a relationship with you, and and the idea of knowing you, Lord, in a personal way that touches their heart seems so foreign to them, I pray that before even this program's over, uh, they would uh, open their hearts and invite you in, ask you to forgive their sins, come to understand that Jesus died on a cruel Roman cross to pay the price for their sins, past, present, and future, and because he's risen from the dead, now we can be reconciled into a right relationship with you. What a joyous prospect, Lord. Make that genuine, make that personal, make that practical within our lives, we ask. In Jesus' name, Mm. amen.
0: Amen. Amen. Man, what a privilege we get to spend this hour um, seeking the Lord for these questions in his word. We had, um, towards the end of the show yesterday, we had... Question and a bit of a discussion about uh, the account of creation in Genesis. And whether Genesis is factual or whether it is sort of symbolic. A lot of people have that question, right, Sean? Yeah, Um,
1: Adrian and I spoke our piece, but uh, since the questionnaire was left unsatisfied, we thought we'd throw in a third wheel. Yeah,
2: Yeah, uh, you know, it's interesting how uh, the questioning of the historicity of the account, specifically of creation, in the book of Genesis. I haven't really come across a whole lot of people that are uh, concerned about the historicity of the account of uh, Abraham uh, or Joseph, uh, or the other uh, individuals that we run into in the book of Genesis. Uh, Generally speaking uh, there's two lightning rods, I think, maybe three, uh, that tend to uh, cause people to be dismissive about the historicity of Genesis. The first one, obviously, the account of the creation that we find in Genesis chapters 1 through 3. Uh, the next one that seems to get people in an uproar is the account of the global flood uh, that is portrayed in uh, Genesis chapters uh, 6 all the way through 9. Uh, some will uh, get uh, a little bent out of shape about the Tower of Babel, don't usually hear too much about that, but the next one obviously is the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Usually these are the ones that are raised and people say, "Well, I'm just not sure. I really buy the historicity of all that. Uh, that seems a little bit mythic to me." Uh, and uh, the the other thing that I find is that even in Christian circles, even in sometimes, and Sean, you'll bear me witness on this, apologetic circles, uh, there are those who, who feel that, well, you know, the historicity of the first three chapters of Genesis, for instance, first ten, uh, is is not a hill. That I really want to die on in terms of interacting with non-believers. And so if non-believers want to look at this as some, you know, mythic uh, accommodation or some borrowing of uh, Babylonian flood epics like the Gilgamesh epic and so on, uh, then, uh, you know, we we can do that because we just want to get on to uh, talking about the resurrection of Jesus. We don't want to get sidetracked talking about the first 10 chapters, say, uh, of Genesis, and then going on to uh, Genesis 18 and 19 and the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah and so on. So, um, you know, you will run into people and say, well, it's just not really an issue that, you know, we, we really want to deal with. And because they really don't want to deal with it, and yet non believers do want you to deal with it, there have been some responses that, that uh, people have come up with to try to accommodate. Uh, the first three chapters, or even the first 10 chapters of Genesis, with uh, the latest uh, in vogue uh, takes on uh, the origins of man, uh, that uh, scientism, not the scientific method, but individuals who identify as scientists, who are practicing a philosophy called naturalism, that all things can be explained by natural process without any recourse to a creator, that the universe can be explained in that completely naturalistic way. Some will try to overlay that mentality into Genesis and try to say that you can have it both ways. You you can believe in evolutionism, and you can believe in the account in Genesis, and uh, they will come up with different ways to do this. Some will say, oh, well, we have the framework theory that uh, essentially says the highlight truths that we find in these accounts are probably true. You know, that there is a God out there that he did create, the details of which aren't really important. But, uh, you know, the, uh, the the writer of Genesis, and usually they will uh, be pretty agnostic about who that was. Uh, Jesus certainly wasn't, identified being Moses. Uh, That's been the traditional view. And uh, the Jesus-endorsed point of view for a long, long time. But they'll say, well, you know, you, you don't really have to go whole in. Others will say, well, you know, I'm not really willing to buy into this completely mythic view, but how about if we insert uh, millions or even billions of years in between uh, the statement in Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void. Well, they try to wedge that in there, and it's, this is called the gap theory or the ruin and reconstruction theory, that there was a pre-Adamic race, uh, that there was a pre-Adamic flood where God judged the world, and this is when Satan fell, and the world that existed back then was wiped out, and that what we see in Genesis is a recreation, and and you'll get these, these points of view. Why don't we buy into all of this? Well, without taking up the whole program to talk about these different idea. Uh, and if you want to explore gap theory or framework theory or, or different things like this, uh, we'll be happy to explore these things with you if, if this is where the questioning goes. But getting back to the question that Annie uh, asked yesterday and, uh, and saying, well, you know, why can't we just buy this as being mythic? Well, you know, in order to see the first 10 chapters of Genesis as being mythic, we have to read into the scripture, not read out of it. And this is what I mean. Uh, in uh, the, the book of Genesis, we see a recurring theme. You ever wonder why the book of Genesis is called the book of Genesis? Mm. Genesis is the Latin word for generations. And uh, one of the things that we see repeated over and over and over again is this idea of generations or a genealogy, if you will, mm. of uh, of not just human beings, but even of the creation itself. A fascinating aspect of this is found in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 4. There we see this GPS heading, if you will, in order for us to understand what we're dealing with in Genesis. It says, this is the history of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. That word history, the Hebrew word toledoth, is repeated over and over and over again in Genesis. It explains to us, first of all, the generations of, or the genealogy of, the heavens and the earth Mm. as we get there. Then we get into the first genealogies that we find in Genesis chapter 4. We see the genealogy, if you will, the generations of the Toledoth of Cain. Then we get to Genesis chapter 5. We see the generations, the Toledoth, if you will, of Seth the one who took Abel's place after he's murdered by Cain. Then we see after the flood, the table of the nations, again that word comes up again. We see in Abraham, the generations of Abraham, if you will, the the genealogy if you will, that led to Abraham. We see after Abraham, the generations if you will of Isaac and Jacob and then the 12 tribes of Israel. Clearly, the writer of Genesis is trying to give us a historical record that telescopes down, if you will, from the creation of the universe, down to the creation of the first human beings, down to the explanation as to why we live in a fallen world and why we need genealogies that uh, all end with the same term, and they died. Uh, We see the explanation for this. We see the explanation for the scattering of the various nations and languages. We see the uh, the generation, the explanation for how God chose one family, one man. He called from a place called Ur the Chaldees, called Abraham. And then from Abraham, we start to see the picture of how God was going to use this one man and his offspring to be a blessing to the whole world. Mm-hmm. And uh, having the benefit of 2020 20 hindsight. We look back and we see, ah, this is how God was going to bring his son into the world. This is, these are the facts of what has happened here. Mm. So when someone says, you know, can't this just be mythic? Well, it could be mythic if the book of Genesis started with some things that would, you know, give us the high sign we're dealing with mythology. If it began with the words, once upon a time. <laughs> to use an English phrase, or, you know, maybe in a more modern phrase, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far mm. away. But it does not. Mm. It purports to tell us the facts of how this universe got here, how the earth became a habitable place, how man was created in it, uh, why this universe is as close as a sinner will ever get to heaven and as close as a, or, uh, as close as a saint will ever get to hell. It answers all of these questions for us. And it does so with an unblinking eye of history. Now, the more we go on and verify the places and peoples and events that we find even within the book of Genesis, the more we find that it is a trustworthy work of history, not just because of the eye of archaeology, because get five archaeologists in a room, you'll probably have 10 opinions. But the most important thing, and you guys brought this up, and I would emphasize this point, is no less an authority than Jesus himself, spoke of some pretty major issues in those first 10 chapters of Genesis as being historical. What did Jesus point to as being historical in his ministry?
1: Well, if we were to just pick one for the sake of time, we mentioned in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus referenced the founding of the first marriage with two literal figures, Adam and Eve, or as they were called at the time, man and woman. And what's important about that as well is from the framework of two actual people, he said, What man, what God has joined, let not man separate. He came to a practical conclusion, not an allegorical application.
2: Right. And, you know, again, Jesus was very uh, straightforward, for instance, about uh, the historicity of the flood of Noah being as genuine an event as his second coming. So if we're going to throw out Noah and make that a myth, well, then you're Mm going to probably end up having to do the same thing with the second coming sooner or later.
1: And the genealogy of Matthew 3.
2: So the, the, the bottom line is this, you know, I get why uh, a Christian would would go down this path. Believe me, in my background, I started out as an atheist raised on National Geographic and PBS programs and Jacques Cousteau, mm-hmm. where evolution is just a given, you know, that's just reality. You don't even question mm-hmm. that. Well, I become a Christian, and I see that the Bible teaches something very different. Well, as a person who came to Christ uh, being an atheist prior to this time, I had a lot of questions, and the more I dug in and the more I began to be convinced that the best way to find truth was not to try to read my presuppositions and my perspectives and my life experience into the Bible Mm. or even the latest uh, popular opinion about what reality is into the Bible, but to simply let the Word of God speak. Mm-hmm. In it's literal, grammatical, and historical format. Genesis is written as history. Mm-hmm. You can deny its history. You can say, I don't think that's accurate at all, but you can't have it both ways. You know, i just wrap up with this illustration. Uh, a friend of mine is a retired attorney, and I run into him uh, every now and then at uh, health clubs I work out at. And uh, we get into these long involved conversations and he always wants to talk about creation and evolution. Well, one day he came up to me and he looked like the cat that ate the canary, so pleased with himself. And I'm uh, running on the treadmill and he goes, "Wow!" Well, because I just got out of the sauna and I sat there with a the guy and he said he was a pastor. And he told me that you can believe in the book of Genesis and you can believe in billions of years and evolution at the same time. And I thought, oh boy, you know, I put the thing on pause and I go, here we go. And what he said next really blew me away. He looked at me and he goes, that made me sick and i went what and he goes well you know anybody who's read the book of genesis knows that you can't wedge billions of years and evolution it's just not there Hmm. he goes i totally disagree with you but at least you're consistent. (laughs) So I never forgot that because I think well-meaning Christians will try to say, well, maybe we can meet them halfway and maybe we can buy into some of these uh, materialistic ideas and and this framework of millions and billions of years in spite of the fact that the Bible teaches the exact opposite. Mm. That's not uh, what non-believers want to hear. Mm. What non-believers want to hear is for us standing for God's word, standing for God's truth, why? Because Jesus stood for it. And you, you take away, uh, you know, the, the fall of man as described in Genesis chapter 3. Uh, you have uh, sin and death before the fall of man. You've completely destroyed, and I think you guys touched on this, the doctrine of original sin. Mm-hmm. And if there is no original sin, if we're all just kind of very good people and getting better all the time, Why did Jesus have to die on a cruel Roman cross? Why did God have to become a man and live a perfect life, die for us, and rise from the dead?
1: Paul's entire point in Romans 5 is kaput.
2: Yeah, Mm -hmm. which is?
1: That there was a first Adam, and there is now a last Adam. That under one figurehead, by one man, all died, and by one man, all will live. Jesus wasn't a symbolic resurrection figure, although I'm sure we'll get close to that as time goes on we're given an actual savior and an actual legal head that separated us from god
2: yeah yeah so I, I hope i hope and that's that's a little more clear for you uh... why we take the position that we do uh... again if you want to explore this in-depth i would highly recommend that you go to answers that is the website and uh... you can go as deep as you want on that website uh, there are articles that are written for, you know, the, the, the popular uh, person with the uh, popular culture oriented person just has some questions. You can go all the way into uh, PhD level dissertations on issues relating to the reliability of the Bible. And I love this, defending the reliability of the Bible from the very first verse. Mm. Uh, and so uh, Ken Ham and the rest of the staff there uh, really do a great job. Jason Lyle, who's a uh, Ph.D. level scientist in astronomy, writes incredible articles in that area. I've always been fascinated by astronomy. And, and so I think you'll find it a very, very good read. Um, I, I would just say, don't make up your mind on the issue till you hear the other side. Uh, go to Answers in Genesis and see if you find their answers more consistent and more biblical than maybe some of the stuff that is being popularized, even in some apologetics oriented websites.
1: Yeah, and again, not to drop names or condemn ministries, but Frank Turk and Cross Examined, William Lane Craig and Reasonable Faith, uh, Mike Jones and in Inspiring Philosophy, they all make this compromise because, as we stated, they encounter a lot of atheists and they'd rather focus on real issues. The problem is when we see these concessions, we see their witness compromised rather than clarified and redefined if we are going to make a stand for God's word, we should do it for all of it, not just the parts that lead to difficult rabbit trails. The fact there are difficult people doesn't mean the ba- the Bible isn't worth defending. It means that if those areas are under attack, probably because they're a threat, and that's the point that we want to make. And, and
2: this is the bottom line. Um, do we really want to end up in a position where we're saying Jesus got it wrong about the flood of Noah and Adam and Eve? It, it,
1: right.
2: if, if you want to take that point of view, it, it's America. You can... Take that point of view, and uh, the First Amendment will be your rod and your staff, but uh, I would not want to stand before the Lord someday and explain to him why I thought I knew better than he did about these issues. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Great. Thank you for those insights. Here's that um,
0: website, answersingenesis.org on your screen. I've been longing to use this technology of sharing <laughs> websites. <laughs> <laughs> That's, uh, for those watching, answersingenesis.org, uh, just a great, great, great resource, so do check that out. As Pastor Scott said, lots of articles on there some uh,
1: um, current events.
2: Yes.
0: Oh, yes, thank you. I almost forgot. Um, please, please yeah, share. Y-
2: you know, we, we really want to get to your question, so we'll dive in as quickly as we can. However, uh, before airtime, there were some people uh, asking about this. Uh, this morning, the Today Show uh, led with a, a story about a pilot sharing videos of strange UFO sightings in the skies over the U.S. Uh, NBC News' Gaddy Schwartz reported for the Today Show on what they call possible otherworldly sightings. And as you can probably imagine, that was uh, eating up the internet like nobody's business. We always get this question, uh, what about UFO phenomena? It's Mm. actually not even called UFO anymore. They call it UAP phenomena, unidentified aerial phenomena. Mm. Uh, In fact, uh, even the aerial uh, is being called into question because the new trend is not just seeing unidentified aerial phenomena, but underwater phenomena uh, that uh, seems to be behaving like the traditional UFOs. Something's there, we don't know what it is. The, the fascinating thing is, and you know, this pilot they interviewed uh, talked about how more and more uh, commercial pilots, uh, obviously uh, uh, individuals in the armed forces who are pilots, uh, are reporting these uh, strange uh, sightings of uh, what they believe are craft uh... being able to uh... do things that are absolutely physically almost impossible according to current technology uh... being able say for instance to be able to cut a ninety degree turn while traveling six thousand miles an hour in the atmosphere and uh... not miss a beat uh... the, the uh... the idea behind this is gaining some steam and some um, some traction in our culture Because not only did Congress bring in uh, representatives of the Pentagon who showed uh, 400 different examples of unidentified uh, aerial phenomena that to their minds were inexplicable. In other words, people weren't just, say, mistaking um, Elon Musk's Starlink satellites uh, for something else. Uh, You know, there's a lot of things that you'd see that might look strange at first blush, but there are some that even defy those kind of explanations. So you know what is a biblical uh, response to all this? I'll just try to condense this down and again if you want to follow up with questions uh, you certainly can. Mm-hmm. Uh, the The interesting thing to me is there's always a leap when people see something strange that they can't explain in the sky. Uh, they will always make this leap that what we are dealing with are the uh, crafts or artifacts or proof of other civilizations, alien civilizations, a la Star Trek, a la Star Wars, uh, you know, that uh, we are just waiting first contact by the Federation of Planets, if you will, and that that is going to happen, and uh, you know, the government knows about all of this, but uh, they won't release it because everybody would freak out and panic. Well, whenever I hear that, my first objection to that is how much conditioning have we had through the media, through popular things like Star Wars and Star Trek and, and movies and books like Contact and others and, and my favorite, Martian, and, I mean, going back to when, when I was a kid, how many of these things have we been exposed to uh, to the point where if, say, a UFO landed on the White House lawn, most people go, what took them so long? <laughs> you know, I, I don't think anybody's going to freak out and panic. They're going to yeah. go, well, of course, you yeah. know, we were just waiting for all of this. Uh, you know, William Shatner and Captain Picard told yeah. us this was going to happen. Yeah. So, you know, so so there we go, you know. <laughs> uh, so, you know, I, I always kind of, I'm a little reticent about all of that. But, you know, when the question comes up, the, the the question usually is twofold. Number one, does the Bible speak about the possibility of life on other planets? Mm-hmm. Well, Few things. First of all, the Bible is entirely silent on that question. Mm. It does not tell us if, you know, there are robot Amazons from the planet Stinky Pinky or anything like that. They don't are you sure? tell us, it doesn't mention life on any other planet aside from planet Earth. Mm. That, and some people, even C.S. Lewis, uh, carried the idea that. You know, perhaps the reason is because we're a fallen planet, and we'd be quarantined, and no decent civilization would want to have anything to do with us. Uh, I think there might be some relevance to that. Uh, People say, "Oh, you know, we're we're looking for intelligent life in the universe." Well, if people came here and got on the from the other planets and got on the (laughs) internet for five minutes, they'd question whether there's intelligent life here. So, you know, all of that aside, does the Bible present company? Except does the Bible speak about Uh, the possibility of that we can say no as far as a definitive statement is concerned but we can also say that the Bible presents a very earth-centric point of view on reality and by earth-centric this is what I mean when the universe comes into existence in the book of Genesis we are told that God made the heavens and the earth Uh, but he begins with the earth In fact, the sun, moon, stars, planets, all the things we see in the sky don't come on the scene till what, day four of creation? So, uh, you know, something, well, you know, it was just smoky and we couldn't see it till that. You know, no, it doesn't allow for that. God made those things at that particular time. There are passages
1: that note a human-centric point of view, but that's not one of them. The introduction to these passages, the language is very explicit, and it's also, this will tie into a future question we receive from Yari, not absurd to say God couldn't have introduced the sun, moon, and stars at a point.
2: Yeah, so, so once again, we see this earth-centric point of view in the creation, but wait, it gets better. Uh, we see, for instance, the actions of two human beings on this earth Having a universal impact. In other words, when Adam and Eve fell, according to Romans chapter 8 and verse 19 and following, the entire creation was cursed and is now groaning in travail, waiting for the redemption of the children of God. In other words, people that are here on earth. Yep. If there are civilizations out there, if there's the Vulcans out there, for lack of a better term, would seem really odd that the behavior of Adam and Eve on uh, this planet uh, is somehow going to have an impact upon people that are living on another planet have nothing to do with Adam and Eve. But that's what you'd have to buy into to keep this consistent. The other thing that's really interesting is this. When God decided to enter into his creation, he did so as a human being, not as a Vulcan, not as an Aurelian, not as Jabba the Hutt. He came as a human being. He didn't come as Yoda, if you will. He became a man in the person of Jesus Christ. We are told that Jesus died and rose from the grave and ascended into heaven and continues in his existence as the God-man, 100% God and 100% man, not 100% God and 100% Andorian, right? Um, So, you know, we see this God-centric point of view. Now, here's the kicker for me. Events that are going to take place here on this planet are eventually going to affect the entire universe. Because after God gets done dealing with things in this planet, according to Revelation chapter 19, chapters 19 and 20, God is going to recreate the heavens and the earth. He's going to make a new heavens and a new earth. Second Peter chapter 3 indicates that this current earth and this current heavens, including the universe, is going to be completely destroyed with fervent heat and recreated into a place where righteousness dwells. All of this revolves around events here on planet Earth. Mm. So although we don't get some definitive yes or no as far as other life on other planets is, are, are concerned, we do seem to see this incredibly Earth-centric point of view. And because of that, I am very, very, very skeptical at this leap into mythology, uh, this leap into sci-fi that people make when they see something they don't understand in the sky. They say, ah, oh, this must be an emissary from another planet. Mm-hmm. Well, even UFO researchers, and you know, again, this has always been somewhat of an area of interest for me, and it's why I kind of go on about it. But even UFO researchers, secular UFO researchers like Jacques Vallée, uh, one of the most respected UFO researchers out there, have taken the point of view now, and we see it represented in movies like Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, that UFOs are not from other planets. They're from other dimensions. Mm. In other words, they're not physical. They are spiritual. Mm. Now, if I'm Satan, and... Thank the Lord I'm not. Uh, But if I'm the wicked one and I want to deceive as many people as I can, right? I'm not going to show up like a refugee from an underwood deviled ham can and say, I'm the devil and I'm here to deceive you. I'm going to play into the culture. I'm going to play into the modern mythology, you know, and so when we see uh, objects in the sky or in the water doing things that defy physical laws, could it be because they are spiritual Mm. and you know one of the things that's really interesting is that satan trades in what we call doctrines of demons his number one strategy is what to get us to believe things that aren't true about ourselves about god about what it means to know god in a personal way he wants us to believe anything but god's truth
1: Mm.
2: what better way to sell that than to come up with an evolution-centric point of view you can't watch an episode of star trek without being spoon-fed evolution Mm -hmm. can you You know, oh, we all came from the same goo, you know, and oh, it's a good thing that all came together because, uh, you know, if uh, Jean-Luc Picard makes the wrong choice, then, you know, these things won't come together and life won't spring forth in the universe. And, you know, all of these myths that we see on this popular media
1: and note there are dozens of different forms of the theory of evolution, we don't dismiss every one of them. What's being popularized under threat of being fired and ostracized from every scientific community is abiogenesis, macroevolution, through means of natural selection. Now, that's the most popular evolutionary view. There are views of evolution that Christians would have no problem acknowledging because we actually have evidence for them. That's called structural adaptation, the idea of species adapting into different breeds and different types and kinds of one another based on environment and, of course, circumstance. But when we then make the jump and say because species can show diversity within themselves, the assumption that Charles Darwin and modern scientists are making is, of course, then, all life was just a speciation of something simple and something single-celled
2: organism, which yeah. again mm-hmm.
1: they can't verify, they mm-hmm. can't replicate, they can't prove, apart from assuming their conclusions.
2: Yeah. So, bottom line is this: the 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 sales pitch for belie- believing in evolutionism mm-hmm. that we you know were it you know we're, we're a happy accident, if you will, in a, in a cold and uncaring universe. Uh, The message of the movie in the book, Cosmos, was uh, it's good to know there's other civilizations out there because in this cold and uncaring universe, we are all that we have. Mm -hmm. In in other words, we're supposed to take comfort in that? You know, Uh, if we're the only species that that exists, isn't uh, uh, the universe a waste of space? Mm. Well, no, not at all. Uh, the heavens say, or the, the Bible says that the heavens are declaring the glory of God. They're, they're doing their job very well, as a matter of fact. But the, the, the bottom line is this. When a person makes the jump into this, well, this is another civilization or another species that's there, uh, you know, when you study, start to study what's called UFO contactee phenomena, uh, close encounters of the third kind, as the movie presented it, or even the fourth kind, mm-hmm which includes conversation with these entities, you always see a theme. Uh, they will go out of their way to either say that Jesus was one of us, and he was just a, a space being that people mistook, or that Jesus is completely wrong and that evolutionism is the way, and, you know, or that we are the ones who created and see. That's the theme of all the alien movies, by the way. Yeah. You know, that uh, that we are just a, uh, a, a genetic war project put on by some advanced uh, civilization. That's how we got here, which is really begging the question. You're saying, well, how could something as complex as human beings arise from mere chance? Well, it wasn't mere chance. The engineers did it. Well, great. Mm. Who made the engineers? <laughs> you know, so... Uh, The the, the bottom line is the more you interact uh, or you see people who have interacted with these entities, whether it's real or imagined, uh, things like the Urantia book and others, you see this theme that, uh, you know, you are our offspring. We created you. Mm. When you grow up enough, we're going to reveal this to you. Your religions, like Christianity, are just primitive crutches for you to lean upon. Boy, you know, when I start seeing this thing, you know, you start to smell the sulfur in the room. Mm. So, you know, once again, be very, very careful because when we see these things, there's not just a report, say, of objects doing strange things. It's always tied into a jump into what we call, not just the physical, the metaphysical, that we're dealing with something that is absolutely unprovable, absolutely unverifiable, intelligent beings from other planets that evolved just like we did. That's a, that's a worldview. That's a spiritual assertion. That is not science. So be and very, also very note, careful.
1: And also note, when we get into the fourth kind encounters, the first level UFO phenomena where you have physical interaction with these beings, look them up and uh, notice a common trend that tends to come alongside these encounters, or at least the kind of individuals that are susceptible to them. I'm mm-hmm. making a cigarette gesture, by the way. So, yeah, yeah. I lost
0: track of how many movie references you made as you were talking about that. It's so true, like you said, the media just promotes... Uh, So much of that stuff, and like you said, that's why it may not be any surprise. You know, people almost waiting for there to be contact. Yeah, and
2: and here I'll I'll throw out something and, you know, take it for what it's worth. This is my speculation, all these disclaimers in place. What would cause the entire world to follow a guy like the Antichrist? What would be the one thing that everybody in the world could probably agree on as the ultimate uh, calling card, if you will? A mortal head wound being healed. Yeah. Mm. Or someone being able to call down fire out of heaven. Mm. Um, someone who says, Hey, uh, I'm from the United Federation of Planets. Yeah. In fact, I'm the head of it. And I'm going to set up my headquarters right here and mm. right now. And we feel like you guys have pushed things to the limit. You're going to destroy yourselves. A lot of sci fi movies about that. Or that you've finally grown up enough. And have enough technology so that we can now have first contact with you. Yeah. And For now three we're and going a half to years. now we're going to straighten you guys out. Mm. Boy, you wanna you would think there'd be an awful lot of people that would say, oh man, you know, you can't the scene's believing. Look, this guy just signs and went somebody tried to kill him and boom, he's right back up again. Mm-hmm. Must be the United Federation of Planets. Let's go along. Um, and whatever you do, don't watch that Twilight Zone to serve man and find out that it's a cookbook yeah yeah Yeah, absolutely
0: so yeah well time as usual is getting away from us so we have a question from craig
1: craig
0: craig yes when uh, when we are told we have been given a gift from god for example we've been given wages to pay for necessities it's a gift from god if it's a gift why do we still regard it as belonging to god so i guess generally when we're given gifts and things do they really belong to us or do they belong to god and How do you balance that in our attitude?
1: Yeah, usually the confusion is uh, keeping some parables in mind that make this point that God's entrusted to us things to be faithful with and that we will give an answer, give an account of our lives. Because while our lives are even considered a gift from God, they aren't our own because we are going to be held accountable for how we use them. The gift in the sense that you're meaning it, Craig, is just something that is now on your ownership and you can do with it what you will. If we are going to understand gift in a biblical sense in the terms that you're using, life, our privileges, our talents, our opportunities, these are all things on loan to us from God in order to either glorify him or ourselves. That would be the shortest answer. Yeah,
2: 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 10 says, As each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. A steward didn't own the goodies in the household. No, the steward was responsible for the proper use of the goodies that the master owned in the hu- the household. So any uh, spiritual gift we have really belongs to God. God wants us to be faithful stewards of those gifts.
0: Right? Yeah. And really, any like you mentioned, any anything, not only a spiritual gift, but you would say any possession or anything. I mean, we're made to bring glory to God in all things, right? Anything that we have, a house or anything. You could say the same of. Would you agree?
1: Wouldn't disagree. Yeah,
0: (laughs) I'll take it. Yeah, I'll take it. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, Craig, thanks so much for your question. Great question. I have a question from Mac D. You're becoming a regular. I'm learning this. Welcome. Uh, Great question. Can one pray inwardly instead of out loud? I feel like that kid from Wonder Years at times. I love that. <laughs> from if I remember, he had this on this inward uh, dialogue. Yeah, going dialogue on. going on. Yeah. Um,
1: Nothing wrong with it, but yeah. should it always be the case? No. There are times and places for outward prayer as well, for no other benefit than your own. Because sometimes, if it's internal monologue, it's even more slippery and likely for us to lose track of who we're talking to.
2: Yeah, yeah, that's true. You know, Jesus in uh, speaking about prayer in uh, Matthew chapter six had a a really interesting priority for our prayer lives. He said, uh, when you pray, uh, you shall not be like the hypocrites for love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets, they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have the reward. But you, when you pray, go into your room, and when you have shut your door, pray to your father who's in the secret place. And your father who sees in the secret place will reward you openly. Now, if you're just with God and yourself, um, you know, I, one of the, the things that I like to do so is I like to uh, go out and, uh, and pray when I'm out in nature, when I'm trail running or, or out riding my mountain bike or things like that. And when I'm out there, there are some times where, you know, if I'm away from everybody, I'll pray vocally. But a lot of times it's just talking to the Lord, you know, in my heart and in my mind. Uh, and, and I think that's the key thing. It, you know, God is interested in us expressing our heart to him, when we pray, it's not so much vocalizing the words that matters. Although, like you said, Sean, that keeps us on track. Yeah, you know, it keeps us from drifting. But we can also pray uh, silently. Uh, there's all kinds of different avenues of prayer, and even examples of that. Uh, maybe the classic example of that it was Nehemiah mm-hmm. uh, when he was standing in front of uh, King Artaxerxes, and Artaxerxes says, "Why are you so bummed out?" I because I'd never been. Uh, you know, bummed out in the king's presence before. I'm using the Scott Richards translation there. And to be bummed out in the king's presence was potentially a life-threatening situation because you didn't want to harsh the king's mellow, right? Right, so, so uh, you know, it, Nehemiah says, I made my prayer to the God of heaven, and then I said, oh, King Artaxerxes, you know, how can I not be uh, disconsolate knowing that Jerusalem is in, in ruins and in the, 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 the place of my my forefathers, is, is a disaster. And again, I'm paraphrasing yeah. here. But the the bottom line is, Nehemiah didn't say, hold on a sec, King Artaxerxes. I'm going to go over here and I'm going to articulate my prayer to God about what I want him to do here. And then I'm going to, you, you see the point. Yeah. yeah.
1: So let us know if that helps you out.
0: Hope it does. Sorry, I was uh, multitasking over here and yeah. And okay. <laughs> as I come, as I the often territory. As, yeah. as I am, yeah, Mac. Thank you for that. It's a great question. Great question, indeed. Um, question from Yari, harkening back to what we were talking about. He said, "What about uh, the water turning to blood? Is that literal, literal, or symbolic?" He um, heard a pastor say that it was just a red tide trying to sympathize with an unbeliever. Oh, um, great. Well, All these well
2: there's from. some serious flaws to that particular theory, and, and this really underscores a principle that you'll run into when well-meaning people wanting yep. to building bridges with people who have a naturalistic point of view an anti-supernatural right. bias yep. will say, well maybe it's a red tide that killed everything. Well that's interesting because that red tide somehow had to find itself into all of the pots and vessels of the Egyptians as well that weren't a part <laughs> of the Nile River. Yeah. That's, I've been around red tides, you don't want to be around a red tide, it smells to high heaven. Mm. But I've never seen, even at a beach house that I stayed in when the red tide came in, unfortunately, uh, you know, it's this lack of, it's this uh, algae bloom that sucks all the oxygen out of the water. So all the other stuff dies and hence the bad smell. I've been there right on the banks of the Pacific where a red tide came in, walked back to the beach house we were staying in and lo and behold, none of the sparklets water bottles in the beach house were affected by the red tide. So if you're going to use that as a theory, you've got to make the theory fit all the data. And, and this is really uh, the, 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 the rub that we get into. We make these well-meaning attempts yeah. to naturalize a supernatural phenomena. Um, it usually ends up taking more faith to believe in that theory than it does that God, in fact, did an act of judgment at that particular time, don't you think?
1: Yeah, and that's always how we want to approach the text, is, is it consistent? Is it verified by other people who handled it a certain way? And of course, would I need to seek an alternative to begin with? Is it absurd or impossible or against God's nature to do this sort of thing? Not only do we have two out of three as far as a victory lap is concerned, but further emphasis later on in the Bible of this on a global scale, and that actually ends up making this into an absurdity. What I mean by that is this, and again, for the sake of time, time. In consistency, Exodus chapter 7 all the way through 12, I believe, in the death of the firstborn, very, very few people would question, okay, frogs appeared everywhere. Well, this is just symbolic of the the, the murkiness or the mugginess that uh, humidified the state of Egypt or the, the boils Well, it was a smallpox outbreak or something, you know? Well, why didn't it go into the territories of, you know, Goshen and so forth? You have to be very inconsistent, like we dealt with in the flat earth passages, with the text. If the blood is symbolic, how do you translate that to the frogs? How do you translate that to the flies? How do you translate that to the lice? How do you translate that to the fire? How do you translate that? And on and on it goes. Yeah, I trying. have to be very sloppy with the passage. If On the other hand, I go to later passages where it notes in the same fashion and from the same source, God doing this on a global scale. In the book of Revelation chapters 8 through 16, how do I then justify it emphasizing it was like the blood of a corpse? Not just red, but like you just sneezed up something and it was talking to you. Yeah. And the point, yeah. yeah. anyway, image, but the point being made is this, what about other sources? Well, we actually have archaeological verification in written sources beyond the book of Exodus that's verifying this, where the people themselves didn't say, man, this was stinky, this was just something weird that was reddish in color. And you can look this up. In the Lamentations of the Shepherd, Egyptian contemporaries to the Exodus said, the water has turned to blood, and if we drink it, we lose our humanity. That's the same language in the Egyptian Book of the Dead for any cannibalistic rites that were common in Canaan and in Libya. So note these points. And you can, uh, by the way, get a scholarly review of this in Patterns of Evidence, the Exodus. They did a good overview on it. But the point being made is that we have contemporary sources, people who are there to see it, that weren't from the Bible, that verified the event and said, no, this is blood. We, we know blood. <laughs> yeah. we, we got plenty of it. We've seen it before. We got other uses in the Bible that would be absurd to say that a global red tide was taking place because that's reading so much naturalism, is it, that you just don't have a God at this point. And then finally, when we're talking about the text itself, you have to be very inconsistent with not only the passage that came before it, like Moses being told before Pharaoh, take a water jug, pour it out, it'll become blood, Note the point. It's not Moses stirring up the algae or having a secret pocket of red tide in his sleeve or whatever. God's intervening here. Is it absurd for God to do these things? Absolutely not. If he can create a universe from nothing, if he can introduce new factors like a full-blown Roman crucifixion, resurrecting from the dead in a moment of history Mm -hmm. with 500 eyewitnesses to boot, turning the Nile River to blood temporarily, small potatoes, don't you think? Or a small hummus.
2: Yeah, and uh, you know, the other thing that I would add on that that's a fascinating combat. is that there was an attempt to explain away how Moses was doing yeah, the, these miracles. And uh, for the first two plagues, uh, the magicians mm. of Egypt, Adrian Van Vactor, a professional magician who was on the program yesterday, yesterday yep. and talk about, you know, how you can duplicate some of these things. Uh, that, uh, that we're seeing, at least on a small scale. But then in Genesis chapter 8 and verse 16, the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Stretch out your rod, strike the dust of the land, so that it may become lice throughout all the land of Egypt. And they did so, for Aaron stretched out his hand with his rod and struck the dust of the earth. It became like lice on man and beast. Now, to an Egyptian, that was er, one of the most horrendous things that could ever happen to you. They and, were very dainty. an intensely clean, cleanliness-based culture. They, they Where, did
1: not look like me. They yeah. did not want body hair. Yeah.
2: <laughs> All of the dust of the land became lice throughout the land of Egypt. Now, the magicians so worked their enchantments to bring forth lice, but they could not. So there were lice on man and beast. Then the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. Mm. They didn't know that the first three times so even those con artists those manipulators yep. those people that were trying to pull the wool over people's eyes able to duplicate the first two plagues on a small scale the third one they're like whoa we're out this is this is supernatural yeah and, and this comes from not what i would call a friendly source right no
0: yeah so. yeah and to uh, to uh, um um what you said again you shared about the, the, the guy at the gym that you spoke to, and he respected you more because you, you didn't compromise. And as you said, it's, I, I can see that trap of wanting to try and compromise to maybe outreach to someone, say, well, yeah, maybe evolution, maybe this and maybe that, maybe it was symbolic. But as you shared, um, we'll be respected more if we stick to what the word says and just share that and share the truth. Uh, I have a question from Zan here. Thank you, Yari, for, for being part of the show and your and your question. Great question. Uh, question from Zan. Uh, can you speak on all these paranormal shows a bit? Are there souls that are trapped in their corruption? Or are these demons tricking people to believe um, in this thought of scientific fact? And some kind of life after death. So we've kind of been touching on it a bit, but what do we know about the paranormal? You know, there's, I mean, there's Ouija boards, there's,
2: yeah, I mean, it's the time of year for that. Well, Adrian Van Vactor, along with uh, Rod Robinson, and uh, there was another author, and his name is escaping me right now, but they wrote a book called Unmasking the Masquerade. They're all professional magicians, and they analyze how uh, these uh, so-called paranormal programs uh, pull the wool over people's eyes. Uh, one avenue of it; uh, these were popular, like crossing over, uh, was a, was one of these uh, programs or these uh, the, the Long Island uh, uh, medium and, and so on. Uh, they all talk about these things about contacting the dead and right. people's dead relatives. Well, there's two ways that happens. One is through what's called a cold reading. That is, an individual is practicing this is skilled enough and manipulative enough in subtle ways extract information from the person seeking to contact the great beyond and then reiterates those things being like, oh my goodness this is supernatural uh the other is a hot reading and this is really diabolical and even some well uh less than how shall i say uh, reputable uh tv evangelists tried to use this as words of wisdom and knowledge uh they would have people sit in a green room before the program mm. and uh they would have people who were staff People from the program there, they wouldn't tell them so. And they say, well, what are you here for? And they'd keep them there for hours, you know, and they'd serve them drinks and all that. And pretty soon say, oh, yeah, I'm here to, you know, try to contract, uh, contact my uh, great aunt Bessie because she had, you know, this money that was set away and, and all, all these details. And they go, oh, okay. Well, the whole thing's being videoed. And then they come out and then, you know, the, the medium goes, you're here because you're seeking your aunt Bessie Mm-hmm. And I sense there's money involved here, an inheritance. And they're like, oh, my gosh, how could he have known? Well, he knows it because he watched the video that was going on in the green room. And, and mm-hmm. uh, you know, again, these, uh, some of these charlatan TV evangelists got nailed for doing the same thing. They would have a little uh, FM uh, receiver in their ear, and uh, the guy's wife would be backstage and say, this woman's name is, and she wants you to pray about, oh, have we ever met before? No, your name, God's telling me, your name is... You know, man, talk about no fear of God. Uh, Someday they're going to have to give an an explanation for all this. But when we see these things, uh, you know, once again, lots of uh, very natural and normal explanations for seemingly paranormal stuff. Uh, You know, people will say, well, how far can Satan go to deceive us? Well, sometimes he can um, manipulate us very, very easily, without it having to be like a, a spook fest. Anything you'd add to that?
1: No, just make sure that you understand when we're given examples in Scripture, there are some very, very plain, simple truths that don't allow for the kind of portrayal in Hollywood of the afterlife being just lingering soul. And that, of course, for the sake of time, is the reference in the end of 1 Samuel where Saul, or Saul calls a medium... To raise up Samuel from the dead, and A, he's not happy about it, B, this medium didn't think it was going to work, and C, the only reason God allowed it was at a judgment act of God. Another principle that this falls around with is another one of Ahab's false prophets and God allowing him to be deceived and handing him over, which is also a reference to Romans chapter 1 and 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. The goal is deception, the nature of the demonic is in the message, and there is one key verse that makes this all go kaput if we say, Well, there's people that can just sort out their lives here in the here and now. And it's it's given to man once to die, and after this comes the judgment. That's either true, that's false, it's false, then this is false. I have more reason to trust this than uh, Ghostbusters.
0: Amen. That's the end of our show for today. Thank you so much for joining us. Have a wonderful weekend. We'll see you back here on Monday. God bless you.
1: You've been listening to A Reason for Hope.